Hello, AJT readers. This is Josh Levitsky, and we're bringing you April's AJT highlights. Today, I'm joined by, as always, Roz Manon from the University of Nebraska Medical Center. And we have our uh, editorial fellow, Dustin Carpenter, who's a transplant surgeon at Cornell. Uh, welcome you both. And uh, I think we have a busy, packed uh, agenda today. We have five papers, really uh, very um, different from each other. It's a, a really nice uh, group of articles to discuss as the editor's choice uh, this month. Let me, as always, go over the, the papers we're going to discuss, and then we'll get right into it. So the first two will be uh, discussed by, by Dustin. Um, the first is first clinical grade porcine kidney xenotransplant using a human decedent. Is that how you say it? Decedent, mom, descendant? I think it's decedent. Decedent. Yeah. Uh, I, I tried that like 10 times. That's why. That's why. Decedent, decedent, decedent model um, by Perrette at all. And then the next paper is optimal patient selection for simultaneous heart kidney transplant, a modified cost effectiveness analysis by WADA et al. And then Roz is going to do two papers. Uh, the first being transcripts associated with chronic lung allograft dysfunction in transbronchial biopsies of lung transplants by Parkus et al. And then prognostic value of silent myocardial infarction in patients with chronic kidney disease after kidney transplantation by Santana et al. And then I will finish it up with the impact of the new UNOS donor heart allocation system on waitlist outcomes in early post-transplant mortality among adults with congenital heart disease by Bravo Jameis et al. So without further ado, um, Dustin, why don't we get started off with uh, the very exciting uh, xenotransplant paper that's made a lot of um, headlines. Yeah, yeah, there's definitely been a, a lot of headlines around this in the, in the last few months. Uh, so yeah, so thank you for having me. So nice to be here. Like you said, it's busy, so I'm going to go ahead and get started. So the yeah, so this first paper is out of uh, the xenotransplant group at UAB, uh, looking at uh, a porcine uh, kidney xenotransplant uh, into a potential human brain dead donor. So we all know that there is a long and robust history of xenotransplantation research and solid organ transplant. And I think, as you mentioned, that a lot of listeners and now, you know, really the, the general public uh, will be familiar with the, the recent reports, you know, one, uh, the, the kidney transplant here with UAB and uh, another at NYU, as well as the, the group out of Maryland with the, with the heart transplant into the, uh, to the actual living human. Uh, so there now is sort of a race among groups to sort of finally say, to safely test and bring these, what they've learned in the, in the animal models into the clinical realm. So it's in this backdrop that uh, UAB published this report uh, in which they describe what they say is like the first in vivo preclinical human uh, model to test sort of the safety and fe feasibility of these things that they've been doing in uh, animals for the last few decades. So they cite a lot of uh, sort of proof of concept work uh, that had been performed in the past uh, from pigs into non-human primates. Uh, with the rationale of the of the study basically being that, you know, we've learned all these things in the non-human primate model, but will they translate uh, into humans? Uh, so some of these things that they had figured out were that these sort of, uh, that they were able to knock out, you know, these like gal knockouts, knocking out this carbohydrate moiety uh, in these genetically modified uh, pigs to, to, to prevent uh, hyperacute rejection. And would this translate uh, into humans as well as other things that they have done in terms of complement mediated cytotoxicity and thromboses and things like that. 
And so ultimately, you know, their study had a couple of goals. Uh, the main one was was mainly to just to address core sort of safety questions that had existed within the limits of this of this model that, you know, can we actually can we do this? Like, will it work? Um, the second thing was to test sort of the infrastructure of their clinical team and to see if they could put all the elements together uh, when this actually does reach uh, uh, human models. And so the, the pigs that they used were genetically modified. Uh, they had 10 different genetic modifications. Uh, two, well, one, the one major one was the, was related to the gal knockout of the, of the three pig carbohydrate uh, moieties, as well as a pig growth hormone receptor. There were two other ones that were aimed at complement inhibitors. Uh, there was another one, uh, another two that were human anticoagulant genes, as well as a couple sort of immunomodulatory uh, uh, networks as well. So the, 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 the brain dead donor, uh, so the eligibility requirement for that was just that it had to be a, uh, an adult uh, human, obviously, uh, that had been put up for transplant, but for whatever reasons was turned down for all solid organ transplants. And after that, they had approached the family uh, and got their informed consent. Then they performed a cross match using uh, the, the pig's uh, donor lymphocytes, uh, as well as the, the uh, serum from the, from, from the, from the recipient. Uh, so for the surgery, so they first performed bilateral nephrectomies uh, to make the donor uh, or the potential recipient aneuric at the same time that they were procuring the organs from the pig. And then they sort of did standard kidney transplants to, to, to put the kidneys in. And then in order to measure the kidneys separately, they put the right kidney to the bladder and they put the left kidney and actually just brought it up through the skin so that they could then monitor it. In terms of the immunosuppression that they used, they tried to use what most centers uh, do for uh, for humans. And so they did a thymoinduction with uh, TAC and uh, Cellcept and prednisone uh, maintenance. Uh, it lasted for, a, for just a total of three days. So things that they found, uh, one was that the sort of the, the structural integrity of the kidneys was actually much weaker than that of a, a human. So they thought it required a lot more gentle handling. Uh, they also saw that the kidney actually reperfused pretty nicely and that there was no evidence of uh, hyperacute rejection. Uh, and that although the, the kidneys made some amounts of urine, there actually wasn't uh, a lot of uh, clearance uh, by, by the kidneys. So the, the study lasted only for three days. As we know, the uh, deceased brain dead donors can be can become quite unstable and can be difficult to maintain. And so, you know, over the over the course of those three days, the uh, the, the recipient kind of developed progressive multi organ failure with shock liver and pancytopenia and these other things. But despite that, the kidneys actually looked pretty good uh, for those three days. Uh, they did not uh, detect any elements of chimerism uh, or any uh, uh, transmission of viruses from the from the pig to the human. And they did serial biopsies along the way, and and although there was a fair about of a fair amount of uh, acute tubular injury, there was no evidence of rejection. Uh, there was no uh, C4D deposition. There was some uh, thrombotic microangiopathy early, uh, although it never worsened. And at the end, uh, the kidneys were still viable. There were no evidence of cortical necrosis or anything like that. So you know, I think the 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 authors were pretty happy. You know, they you know they said that you know that these sort of several things that they were looking at, they, they felt that they had at least decent answers to. And that was, you know, one was that what were they using in the non-human primate model? Was it sufficient to prevent hyperacute rejection in humans? And that, that seems to be the case. Uh, the second was that, you know, it looks like they were able to develop a flow-based cross-matching to see if, you know, they could, they could test uh, whether or not uh, they could predict uh, this in uh, pre-transplant, which it looks like they were able to. Third would, you know, would putting in the kidney, would, it, would, would the human develop some like 
a great like cytokine storm or make them unstable and that didn't seem to happen and then uh was their infrastructure you know sufficient to to kind of do this and it looks like all those things were true you know obviously there are you know it's you know this this seems to be a huge step obviously you know this is why it sort of made you know major news you know there are some caveats to the study obviously you know it's not you know, their brain dead environment's not quite the same, you know, certainly peripherally, there's a there's sort of a, this intense, you know, uh, immunostimulated state that, that, that they exist in. Uh, obviously, it was, it was pretty short, you know, they were only able to, to maintain it for about three days. And, you know, it's obviously just one episode, but, you know, nonetheless, it's still pretty exciting. Well, this is clearly one of those where you say more studies to follow and you'd be 100% correct. You know, I was at UAB for a long time, so I, I know some of the background um, in terms of the development. It, it definitely didn't happen overnight. There were quite a number of steps taken and a number of investigators, you know, putting this together. And it required significant contributions, not only institutionally and different aspects, as you can tell, multidisciplinarily, including the IRB. But, you know, importantly, you know, constructing a pig facility, which didn't exist. I don't know where it is. It was somewhere out in the country and that was kept pretty close to those individuals because obviously there were there was a lot of feedback in the Times article, for example, for Bob Montgomery's work of people saying, but what about the pig? And um, I, there were a couple of things I thought were interesting. I didn't know why they used NICD-20. You know, when I was there uh, up until 2020, the approaches were all co-stimulatory blockade with a hesitation of using CNI, for sure. So I, I didn't understand that. These were many more gene-manipulated pigs than detector approach or, or maybe um, some of the things that um, David Cooper were conceiving. So I don't know if that had anything to do with it. I, the microscopy is impressive. I agree that it, they said that there was no progression of TMA. I, I do sort of wonder if there was some sort of low-grade antibody because they had endothelial injury some fibrin thrombi, which may have been, you know, associated because they had a, a brain dead donor, although he didn't have brain trauma, I think. So, you know, I think more needs to follow. So again, the which kidney was like, they had it out to the exterior. I missed that part. Oh, the uh, right kidney was to the bladder and the left, they just brought up ex exterior. And which was the one that never really worked? Because the other significant the finding here, the left. So yeah. the left was to the skin. Yeah, but there, there was also an issue with the... With the renal artery, right, right, right. I remember that now. And, and again, the patient, uh, the decedent, um, their function never changed. I mean, this thing made a lot of urine. And I think that's another consideration. Was it all due to brain death and the hyperinflammatory environment? Or is there something here that we're missing? And, you know, these multi-gene pigs have a lot of gene <laughs> targeting. So that, that certainly is... Um, you know, another aspect. I, I felt particularly saddened to hear about the University of Maryland patient. I, you know, I'm old enough to remember baby Faye and actually my first uh, research uh, report as a fellow when I was a renal fellow was on Zeno and I, and that was part of my inspiration. So, and I also work with Jeff Platt. So he was a big Zeno guy back then. Josh, you got any other uh, great well, insights? No, no, not really. I mean, I think it's. Um... When's the liver coming? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah, that's that's another. Uh, that's going to be probably the last of all the organs <laughs> have have this done um, successfully. But um, it is it is uh, more to come here. And I know AST is and ASTS are are very interested in supporting these 
efforts through grants and and journal clubs and stuff moving forward um because i think there's a lot of excite preliminary excitement here so and, and certainly you know the asn's private public partnership with fda called the um khi kidney health initiative they actually oh kidney x i'm sorry kidney innovation which is a a partnership with HHS directly with ASN, and there's an it's all innovation, and two of the projects are on Zeno, including mm-hmm. a different company. So, um, as we like to say, more to follow. Yeah. All right, Dustin. Why don't we move on to uh, heart kidney? All right. So, in the interest of time, I'll try and shorten this a little bit. I think it was a little long, but so this is a uh, uh, so this is a report out of uh, Stanford that's that looks at essentially the title of the, the work is optimal patient selection for simultaneous heart kidney transplant a modified cost effective analysis and, and basically what this is is uh, it, it's using a decision analytic model to evaluate basically people who are listed for heart transplant uh, with comorbid kidney dysfunction in trying to compare people that get simultaneous heart kidneys versus a safety net strategy, sort of that's, that's like in president liver, in which a, 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 like a DDRT would be performed at six months after heart transplant, but only if the native kidneys didn't recover. So basically trying to compare the utility of the simultaneous heart kidney on one side versus the safety net uh, uh, version on the other side. So as we know, you know, kidney dysfunction is, is quite common in people with end-stage heart failure and recovery is, is pretty highly variable. And in people uh, in whom uh, kidney recovery is uncertain, there's obviously the option of simultaneous heart kidney. However, you know, given the organ shortage, you know, each one of these simultaneously heart kidneys, you know, removes a potential kidney uh, for a solitary uh, DDRT uh, for a recipient on that wait list. Um, so there were about there were about 200 simultaneous heart kidneys each year, and that's doubled over the last decade. And the authors note that they think that the reason for this increase in utilization is actually, you know, from the allocation system itself, in which you know simultaneous heart kidneys are actually prioritized above all candidates uh, for kidney transplant alone, uh, sort of with no standard criteria for uh, sim- simultaneous heart kidney listing. So in contrast, you know, there, uh, people are kind of dissuaded from uh, doing a sort of safety net approach on its own without an actual safety net there, because, you know, if a heart transplant recipient gets a heart uh, and their kidney function does not recover, uh, they have to, they just enter the regular kidney waiting list. Uh, and so they're sort of incentivized not to sort of pursue that way. Um, and so the rationale for doing the, the study that the way that they did it uh, is that, you know, very similar studies were done to kind of help introduce the, the, the liver kidney allocation model that we now use. So the, and what they found was that like models that they had developed uh, for the liver kidney approach actually did uh, two things. One is that they, you know, they lowered the number of simultaneous uh, liver kidney transplants, but at the same time, you know, the outcomes for people with liver transplant uh, did not uh, did not uh, go down. So that, you know, so that it seems like there's less of a, you know, quote unquote, overuse of uh, the dual organ uh, listing in transplants. So, uh, so their goal basically was to identify subsets of these uh, people who were considered for simultaneous heart kidneys uh, where it was, where they felt that it was sort of efficient uh, to to use a simultaneous heart kidney model or uh, the uh, safety net model on, on the other hand. So how did they do this? So uh, I'll take a little bit of time on the model because obviously the whole paper sort of depends on the model. But you know, basically they took the two different strategies, like a patient with kidney dysfunction who also had heart failure, and they put them into you know one of the two groups. Uh, the one group was a simultaneous heart kidney one, in which case you know there could be four different outcomes, right? So both the heart and the kidney could work, 
the heart could work, but the kidney wouldn't, neither would work, or the heart would work, but, uh, the, heart, but the kidney would work, but not the heart. Um, and so in basically they followed that tree down. So if the heart and kidney work, that's fine. If the heart worked, but the kidney didn't, the person uh, would be eligible for a subsequent uh, a retransplant of the kidney. Uh, if the heart didn't work, they would be uh, eligible for a retransplant of the heart. And so they did the same thing for the heart transplant uh, alone model where, you know, person's heart could work with kidney recovery or not recovery. And if the kidney didn't recover, then they would be listed for a DDRT. And so basically what, what they did was uh, they used uh, data from the SRTR uh, as well as other previously published reports to look at the likelihood of each of those different settings. Um, so like what would be the likelihood of early graft failure after a simultaneous heart kidney versus that of a, of, of a, of a heart transplant alone? Uh, and then what would be uh, the expected uh, uh, benefit, you know, comparing, you know, each of those outcomes on the one decision tree uh, versus that of the, of the other decision tree? So two things that they looked at very closely uh, were, uh, were things that uh, were the number one, the reversibility of the kidney dysfunction. So, so basically they, they looked at all these different uh, patients and they, and they made a probability estimate from zero all the way to a hundred saying how likely it would be uh, for the, for the kidney to recover after a transplant. And they looked at, you know, they looked at, you know, what, what would it look like in each of those different approaches? Like if someone had a 25% likelihood of, of having a kidney, of kidney recovery and you did the simultaneously heart kidney, how would that compare against someone who had 25% likelihood, but, but went for the heart transplant alone and, and got a safety net later. And so basically they looked at, and then they, they, they did a sensitivity analysis where they looked at, you know, from 1% likelihood all the way to 100% likelihood, and, and then tried to compare the, the effectiveness of each approach doing that. Um, and then they all, the other thing that they sort of changed around was the, was the heart kidney benefit ratio, which is, which would indicate the, the expected survival benefit of the heart kidney uh, versus the heart transplant alone. And so they basically played around with these two different parameters and they, and they did a sensitivity analysis using each over basically a wide array of spectrums to try and figure out like what was the, what, where, where would you derive the, uh, the, the greatest benefit uh, for, for each of these different ones. So their primary outcomes were the probability of death within a year of the transplant. Second was the quality adjusted life years. And third was the expected number of uh, kidney transplants for each approach, because obviously, you know, like I said, it's a sort of a zero sum game uh, in the sense that, you know, if you're, if you're using uh, kidneys for the dual organ, they're not available for the, for, the, for the solitary kidney transplants. And so basically, they sort of ran this model. And what they, what they found was that a few things. Uh, first was, was that uh, for the simultaneously heart kidney to be the preferred strategy, it needed to have at least... Uh, an additional like two to almost two and a half uh, quality adjusted life years compared uh, per additional kidney used uh, from the simultaneous heart kidney versus the uh, kidney transplant alone. And what they found was that with patients with the low likelihood of uh, reversibility, which they defined as uh, like only 10%, they experience uh, greater benefits, obviously, uh, using the simultaneous heart kidney approach. Uh, than with a patient with sort of higher likelihood of kidney recovery, which which sort of makes sense, but they found that these ben that these benefits continuously decrease all the way from the you know from low likelihood to the high likelihood. But they also found that people that were younger, so those that were you know 18 to 50, they seemed to experience greater uh, benefits from the simultaneous heart kidney uh, than the older folks, which sort of also makes sense in the, in that you know these people have a longer uh, expected. Uh, 
life expectancy post transplant. So they so they basically found that you know that the that in people that have a low reversibility or people that are younger, uh, those were ones that tended to benefit the most uh, from the simultaneously heart uh, heart kidney. And that uh, people that are older actually have a, there's a very large subgroup of them in that uh, there's a much wider range of uh, reversibility over which the safety net is better. So, you know, the, the, the likelihood of the safety net being uh, better uh, is, is, you know, favors the safety net approach in older people across a wide uh, range of reversibility of uh, the, their kidney dysfunction. And, you know, so, so that, those were sort of the, the main findings that they, that, that they found, you know, and, and obviously, you know, they have some caveats to this and that's, you know, that although for the individual patient, the simultaneous heart kidney could often be the, the best for that individual patient. So, you know, even people that have a low likelihood of kidney recovery, like, like, uh, or I'm sorry, higher likelihood of kidney recovery, even up to 50%, they often derive a benefit from a simultaneous heart kidney. But when you're looking at the total system, that means that, you know, the opportunity cost lost uh, by that kidney not going to someone on the deceased owner list, you know, it, it makes it makes sense to give that person a safety net kidney because the total utility, you know, favors that. And so obviously, you know, this, you know, this study, you know, it's, it's pretty interesting in that, you know, this is kind of the, the same approach that led to the changes that we saw on the simultaneous liver kidney uh, models. And they've seen, you know, in, in looking, you know, prospectively, they've, they've actually held up, you know, with new cohorts of patients. So obviously this is model dependent and, you know, it's retrospective, but it does present some interesting findings that, you know, we'll have to see if, if, if on a prospective cohort, if they, they hold up. Well, certainly, you know, an incredibly sophisticated analysis by Karen Cush and her group. And right, um, I don't think justice. I know it's hard. Well, it's hard. I mean, this is like one of those where we should have like a transplant epi course at one medical center, and we all log in and and really learn from it because it's it's pretty extensive. Josh, I interrupted. I think you might have something more profound. I just this just looks very ditto to um, yeah. But how this was, you know, you had to use retrospective data to to develop a model and put in and kind of show that 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 this is probably the right direction to go and we do have liver kidney with recent data on safety net to show that seems to be working reasonably well that the kidneys are doing the kidneys in the safety net are doing okay they're not having higher rejection rates or graft failure things like that so I, I think it's an important study to have for which I understand is the plan is to have something similar developed in, in UNOS in terms of a policy. But I don't know where that is right now. I'm sure it's in discussion. But yeah, very complicated thing. We don't know if this is going to work in real life when an allocation change is made and and we see real data after, you know, two, three years. And certainly following up on the sensitivity of multi-organ transplant, the implications of taking organs, kidneys in particular, out of the pool and, and the death that it occurs. So I appreciate their the author's sensitivity to that, you know, the issue of utility and equity. All right. So uh, thank you, Dustin. It was a great job uh, reviewing those two papers. And I think we'll move on, Roz, to your... Yes, I, I will try to summarize another paper that could take an hour in five minutes. So, um, so for the authors, my apologies to Parks et al. Uh, from Phil Halloran's group. This is the transcripts associated with the chronic lung allograft dysfunction and transbinecrial biopsies of lung transplants. So 
many of you may be aware that now it's called CLAD, used to be called something, it just used to be called BOS, but much like the world of in nephrology and kidney chronic allograft nephropathy, there has been a concerted effort to have a clinical diagnosis, which is a drop of FED1 by 20%, but also a sort of a categorization by histology and outcome. And so there are really two types of CLAD now. There's BOS, which is the bronchiolitis obliterans syndrome, I think most of us think about as, you know, classic, and then a restrictive allograft syndrome, RAS, which is less much less common, but has a worse prognosis. And we're all aware that transcriptional um, information, you know, the gene transcripts have been heavily utilized in oncology. It has led to better understanding of, of therapy and physiology of tumors and has really revolutionized the field. And it's being applied to other solid organs, in particular the kidney. You can actually obtain this information commercially with light microscopy. And so when you think about CLAD and the unmet needs, there is clearly a need to have a better understanding to help with care, with therapeutic interventions, and importantly, preclinical diagnosis. You don't want to have functional failure, um, and you can't just do transbronchial biopsy serially. So the hypothesis of the study was that the physiologic state of CLAD would reflect parenchymal deterioration, and that this would be distinct from time change. So there would be aging, so to speak, of the allograft, and those changes would be specifically different. And they constructed these classifiers, these ensembles of transcripts to detect molecular changes associated with CLAD uh, to new biopsies with the hope of trying to identify patients that did not have, func you know, were not diagnosed with CLAD. They utilized the interlung study, which is a 10 transplant center study um, following patients prospectively and interventionally when they needed a biopsy of their lung with a median enrollment about 313 days. And, and from the results perspective, they had 635 eligible biopsies to study out of 502 patients uh, in this prospective multi-center multi cohort. Uh, CLAD was only identified physiologically in 18%. My three quarters had the BOS variant versus a quarter that had the RAS variant. And they do a very extensive molecular analysis. I'll just try to summarize. I had a lot more to say, but I'll summarize these findings. The first and foremost is when you look in figure 2A, the, the most important transcripts that they were seen over time are associated with lung parenchymal healing. So probably a final common pathway of whatever the injury may be, whether it's reflux or rejection. And it's these transcripts, HIF1-alpha, serpene 2 and IGF-1, and those have been identified in, in either other fibrotic diseases, but hypothesized to be involved in, in sort of progressive fibrosis. And they did a very nice gene ontology figure of all these biopsies shown in figure 2B. And they also do an analysis over time. And interestingly, even when they correct for time, the, those three transcripts are, that are important remain, including things like collagen 1A, indicative of collagen deposition and, and further wound healing. And then they also look at sort of, you know, CLAD selective transcripts versus time corrected and time transcripts. And what I can just tell you is that time is time and CLAD is CLAD. And so the, the sensitivity and the ability to make diagnosis really varies. They actually do this. They take the CLAD, the, this potential CLAD classifier and apply it to different biopsies and show ROC curves that when you correct the CLAD signature for time, you actually get a better diagnosis of, of as classification on, on their data set. Um, and they also look at the relationship of graft loss with these molecular classifiers. And interestingly, when they do that, some of those transcript sets that we're associating with rejection 
like, you know, interfere on gamma and CDA, the cytotoxic transcript sets, they don't really fit anymore. They, they're not very predictive of, of graph loss. And in fact, that, that this time-corrected class signature, which contains a lot of things in it, but seems to be probably the most uh, useful in diagnostic. And they actually do multivariate analysis to show that it's an independent predictor of graph failure in their outcome beyond the usual things we're used to thinking about, like the grade of disease or the age of the patient and that kind of thing. I'll summarize by saying that these transcripts really seem to represent wound healing and, and as I said, a final common pathway of many different injuries. And, you know, this is an important step to sort of coming up with, with treatments and prognosis. This, uh, you know, this was reviewed at an editorial by Greenland and McDyer, and, and they credited the authors for this very large cohort and this very detailed molecular analysis. And I know um, we had a, we were involved in a very big CTOT study as well with an interest in looking at CLAD. And, and so we're really getting much closer to understanding the pathogenesis. And to the author's credit, the the editorial edit, the editors noted, the editorial writers noted that they use 12 machine learning uh, approaches that I read about in the methods but didn't appreciate. And they actually call this a democratic approach, that they were looking and they didn't have a priori sort of an idea of what they were going to find. They were. So why maybe the time looks so different, maybe because this was a very wide cohort. So there were some biopsies like 5000 days out versus some that were much earlier. And so the impact of time became maybe more impactful because the, the biopsies collected were so vast. And they also noted limitations in terms of tissue collection that the study, the IRB only allowed one transbronchial biopsy, not two, and that, you know, brushings were not allowed. So transbronchial brushings may be better and picking up, you know, RAS findings. And so this was really just focused on, on biopsy. And so further, you know, studies need to be done, you know, if you're using a different methodology for diagnosis. Yeah, I, I thought this was um, just quite impressive, particularly with the numbers of samples they were able to analyze with this uh, MMDX system. And also, um, obviously, the, the ability to look across organs here. They, this group is doing robust work in kidney and heart and liver. And I, I don't know exactly what this information and how it's going to impact uh, clinical management uh, down the road. It, it certainly suggests a kind of a, a fibrotic wound kind of pathway of tissue destruction rather than inflammatory, which kind of makes sense. So uh, certainly there's probably um, multiple different types of clad that may be early versus late that would need to be dissected in terms of these uh, profiles, but it's quite a, quite a robust study. Um, well, it's also interesting that they apply this and found people that had clad molecularly, but weren't diagnosed clinically. And so, you know, as they move forward, just sort of come up with a risk predictor. Diagnostic. Yeah. yeah. And, and again, this is invasive. So I guess the next step, too, is non-invasive uh, diagnosis, although it may be, you know, as difficult as transplant, kidney transplant is in using these peripheral gene expression signatures, it may be even more complicated there. And um, certainly that's way down the, the pathway, but I, I didn't get a chance really to give it great view. So I hope the readers will take a minute, even though they may be kidney transplant doctors like myself, this is like a really nice paper. All right, I'll go to the next one, which is a little bit yeah. easier for those of you that have less bandwidth. And this is a paper by Santana and colleagues at UAB, Fatty Haig's group in cardiology. 
and this is the prognostic value of silent myocardial infarction in patients with chronic kidney disease after transplant. So we know that the ESKD population is filled with cardiovascular risks, and we spend a lot of time evaluating patients and quite a bit of time in non-invasive studies evaluating candidacy for transplant is really a bedrock of our risk assessment. And this group, this is really a follow-up study where they look at the prognosis of silent MI in on EKG, which means you see Q waves, and there are very specific criteria for those Q waves in the paper under the methods, but they don't have any clinical history of having an MI. And they ad previously identified that patients with CKD or those on the waiting list for kidney transplant with ESKD and had evidence of silent MI, had a higher cardiovascular risk and really similar prognosis to those that had a history of clinical MI. So here they look at the prevalence of silent MI in kidney transplant patients, and then look at the outcomes, specifically the, out, the primary outcome is MACE or, or cardiovascular death, MI and revascularization after transplant. They have a database of over a thousand patients who went, underwent transplant in over four years. That tells you the volume at UAB and why I was always so tired. I'm still tired now, but, and they used automated EKG criteria that was set. And then they had two uh, masked reviewers that review these to make sure that individuals are properly classified as either uh, that have evidence of MI. And then the clinical events were reviewed very carefully in the EMR. Uh, showing you that the groups is in table one, um, 7% of the entire cohort had silent MI. So there were 83 patients with silent MI and 66, I believe, that had clinical MI. So the prevalence of silent versus clinical was quite the same. Clearly, the no MI group was really younger, less likely to have diabetes or prior cardiovascular disease, and the follow-up was about five years of their patients, 147 met the primary outcome at immediate of about two years post-transplant. Uh, that's an annualized rate of about 5.5% for both uh, silent MI and interestingly clinical MI were very, very similar. So the EKG picking up silent MI had similar prognostic uh, implications, um, which was twice as high as that for those with no MI. And the death rates were similar in the silent and clinical MI groups. They were really identical and twice as uh, high as those with no MI. They did a sensitivity analysis that included patients that had probable MI based on EKG criteria that actually increased the SMI group. Um, and actually the hazard ratio really was very similar, went up a little bit. Um, they also did a multivariate analysis looking at predictors, adjusting for predictors of cardiovascular events. And, you know, obviously both the silent MI and clinical MI were both important, but as was age over 65 and diabetes. So I think the main findings here is that silent MI is much more prevalent than you realize in, in kidney transplant patients. It's not just in diabetic patients who don't have it, true angina. That silent MI was associated with an increased risk of these cardiovascular events and all death. So it's important to recognize that when you see it on a patient that you just don't say, well, they're not advocating for not transplanting those patients because those patients may do worse on uh, dialysis without a transplant, um, but certainly puts them in a different risk classification. And these risk fi these findings were also applicable to both sexes. So it wasn't just men. Um, women were also similarly affected, similarly whether you had diabetes, whether you had a deceased or living donor. And interestingly, they did a whole subset analysis of myocardial perfusion studies and and notice that regardless of the presence of those abnormalities, it was still the same outcome. I don't think we have time to really sort of get into myocardial perfusion imaging and its importance. And I think we usually consider that imaging is probably more, you know, 
most important for detecting MI. But certainly here, the prevalence on EKG, which is cheaper and less invasive, slightly less invasive, is certainly important. And they recommend it as a secondary preventive measure. This is a retrospective study, and there was a really great uh, editorial by Costa and Lentine about highlighting the recommendations for intervention for patients and noted that in the prior 10-year-ago AHA study of, of annual M, uh, EKG, the impact of SMI was, was sort of graded as grade 2 level C because there was no data. So this is really uh, a big study that shows data that is really supportive of maybe now looking at EKGs post-transplant. Again, knowing the caveats that intervening with revascularization may not reduce perioperative events in CVD. I think um, it's still important to know the prognosis of a patient prior to transplantation. Um, and they actually provide a nice uh, algorithm in, in the editorial in figure one about considering, you know, the risks between clinical MI and silent MI and when you refer to cardiac, when you might consider referring to cardiology. And, and then, of course, goal-directed medical therapy like aspirin, ACE inhibitor, um, all the things that we think about. And then, you know, in statin, which is very, very important. And maybe thinking about those treatments in patients with Sialamai, even though they don't have angina, are probably important. Yeah, I was going to say the same thing. Like, what do you do about this information? And I, I certainly, if I had a patient like this, knowing this data would, would want, you know, a another review by cardiology and maybe some perioperative post-operative management be followed and, uh, you know, control of all the risk factors, of course, um, higher, higher recommendations to the patients to really be, you know, don't smoke, take control blood pressure, et cetera, et cetera, because they're at higher risk. So I, I do think it's, this is a useful clinical paper. All right. So we're going to finish up with, I would just be very brief with this one. Interesting paper on, um, heart allocation. Um, this was done by uh, the Hopkins group, um, Ari Cedars, uh, and uh, in collaboration with UCLA, Columbia, Vanderbilt. Um, this is a, a paper that essentially focused on adults with congenital heart disease. As uh, unbeknownst to me, that I'm not in the cardiac transplant field, there was a, a um, allocation um, change the system was redesigned in 2018 to um, provide greater opportunity to uh, patients with what they call ACHD, which is adults with congenital heart disease. So it's it's clearly known that um, these patients were disadvantaged on the liver trans or the uh, heart transplant waitlist previously. They were less likely to be listed status one, receive an upgrade, or receive a heart transplant, and so. There was some prioritization made uh, for these patients, and so this group wanted to see, well, what was the impact of, of upgrading their priority? Um, did it affect their outcomes, or did it, did it have a negative effect on the, the rest of the heart transplant population, even though this is a small subset? And, you know, was the allocation change, um, was it beneficial? And so um, they compared essentially pre, like the year before and the year a year, a year and a half after the allocation change between um, ACHD and the, the the rest of the population. And, and again, this is a, a subset. There were 535 in the ACHD group and 12,000, over 12,000 in the non-ACHD group, which is everybody else. Um, about half before in the new era and, and half in the prior era. And um, they did a Really, the, the nuts and bolts are, are looking at their 
um, survival on the wait list, the time to transplant, you know, and the numbers of transplants um, compared to the pre-transplant era. And also looking at some evidence of post-transplant outcomes like like mortality and rejections and some interesting findings. And essentially um, the main finding was that these patients um, after the allocation system, because they were prioritized, there were uh, less patients that were non-transplanted. So more, more patients taking off, taken off the wait list and the patients were transplanted quicker, almost um, close to hundred days quicker in the new era than in the, the previous era. And, but there was no difference in the waitlist mortality on the waitlist. So that while the waitlist mortality didn't change, uh, the patients got more often transplanted and, and more quickly. Then they looked at the post-transplant mortality and, and compared to prior era, the ACDH patients had actually had, had greater early uh, post-transplant mortality uh, in the prior era, but not in the new era. So um, it seems like maybe getting them transplanted quicker, they're not as sick coming out of the transplant and maybe less mortality. And the length of stay also uh, was was longer in the prior era and in the current area was not different between the ACHD and the non-ACHD. Interestingly, and, and, and completely left sort of unexplained, there was a higher rejection rate in the new era, 17 versus 10% that the authors tried to explain, perhaps maybe due to patients not being as sick and more likely to reject because uh, they're getting transplants sooner, but hard to tell because this is a, um, a UNOS database. And so, um, you know, to put this into sort of context, this is a, it seems like this allocation change was positive in terms of it, without really a negative downside, except this rejection rate, which again, didn't they did look at survival after transplant. There was no difference in survival uh, between the eras also. And so it looks like they're getting transplanted more quickly, more often, and having less post-transplant complications for, for the most part, like more like dying after the transplant or or staying long in the hospital. And it just sort of makes sense. These are, you know, this we see this in liver transplant also. If you can transplant patients sooner before their MELD score goes to 40, they, uh, that's, that's good. That, that, that not keeping somebody on the wait list is always a good thing. And, um, having better outcomes after transplant, cause they're not as sick, always good. And I, I think this is important because this is a, I, my understanding is this is a, is a complicated patient to patient population to transplant. Some of them have sing, single ventricles and some pulmonary hypertension and, the fact that this system improved their outcomes, even just with an allocation change, um, I think speaks to um, how, you know, the careful look at the disadvantaged population and the changes that UNOS has made to, to deal with um, the disadvantaged population and, the, and their success in the, in the changes that were made in the system. So I, I really like this paper because I learned a lot about congenital heart disease and their outcomes. And I was impressed by the um, outcomes of the allocation change, which we don't always see. Um, I don't know if you had any thoughts, Roz. No, I mean, this is so out of my, like, yeah. like today was like my expertise area, but um, you know, I, you sort of 
sort of don't realize that these patients exist and require transplant. I was trying to look through and see if I could figure out the aspect of the rejection rates. Again, nothing really came out to me. I'm not sure I completely say, oh, I mean, the only thing I could think of is were many, any of these folks on um, uh, VADs, was, was there a difference in VADs and maybe more of them were getting transplanted, they were more sensitized. And then I'm starting to say, okay, sensitization is antibody, could it be cellular, you know, blah, blah, blah. But it is sort of interesting that, you know, people get engaged in these sort of sub areas that they're really focused in. And, you know, by making a meaningful research, you know, by changing policy, eventually, like the previous paper, like Karen Cush's work, you know, you make a meaningful change in policy, then you measure it and and the outcome's been been very positive. So kudos to them. Kudos to this analysis. It is hard with, you know, data. Yeah, I don't know what the induction is. You know, the immunosuppressant stuff is always hard to get good detailed missing into. data and things like that. But yep. the overall overall seems positive. So great. All right. Well, this ends uh, April. We will see you back in May for another uh, episode of AJT Highlights. Thanks, everybody. The opinions of the hosts of the show do not necessarily reflect those of the American Journal of Transplantation. For AJT Highlights, you can find us online at amjtransplant.com that's amjtransplant.com and follow us on Facebook and Twitter.